0: Hey, book lovers, welcome back for another Adapted Here at Book Circle Online. Today, we're talking James and the Giant Peach, the Roald Dahl book that has been adapted into the 1996 Henry Selick movie, so stay tuned as we give all the details.
1: This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors, and now, Book Circle Online. Hello to you all. Get ready to
0: sing, because that's what we're here to do, but not really. I have Marissa Serafini.
2: Hello, everyone.
0: I'm Phil Tech. and you can get your peach by barrels if you order it by post.
2: Yes. Uh,
0: we are talking James and the Giant Peach. It is October, and we wanted to do a book that, that had the spirit of Halloween. It's not exactly a Halloween book, but it has the spirit there. Yeah. Uh, we'd both seen the movie before, but we've... Not read the book. I've read certain Roald Dahl books, but not this one. Uh, have you read the book before or any I, other Roald Dahl books?
2: I actually haven't. I read Charlie and Chocolate Factory years ago. That's a yeah. Years usually ago. people
0: have read that one. That's well, we'll, an easy
2: one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think this one's easy too. Right. But we'll talk about this. So, so here's kind of a breakdown of what we're gonna do today for those of you joining us for the very first time. Uh, we will be spoiler filled. In the sense that we're going to be giving away the book, we're going to be giving away the movie, and we're going to break it down, give you some context, some history, we're going to review it a little bit, we're going to tell you the differences between the book and the movie, and the reasons why, and we're going to talk about why the movie was made, and all that fun stuff, so hopefully it's informative and fun for you. Where we like to start off, usually, is just kind of an overall impression of the book first, so Marissa... You didn't read the book, but uh, you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory way back when. Yes. You know, now as an adult reading a kid's book. <laughs>
2: um, you know what? I, I was excited to read this because uh, we've heard of Roald Dahl and his classics, but uh, it's admittedly for me, it's been years since I watched the movie and didn't really remember what happened. So it's nice to, to read the book. To uh, I was kind of going into it, not really remember anything. It was basically a clean slate. Um, and it was funny. It's like they we had Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spike Spiker, you know, and and they were they were already laughable characters and that really just gets the story set up and it's a very quick adventure when you read it. And I like it because you do have to remember kids are reading this story too, so you have to be really quick in your pacing to keep their attention and the fact that this book is only 160 pages i flew right through it <laughs> literally i felt like i was on the peach flying with them so it i really enjoyed it because beat by beat it went really quickly and it was easy to follow
0: i would 100 percent agree i mean it's got over over 40 chapters essentially in this book and and when you say like 160 pages Half those pages are dedicated to illustrations, which are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And what I appreciate, especially geared towards kids, he knows how to write chapter-ending sentences, where it's he just leaves the biggest And hangers, and you know, when you're trying to get a kid hooked on reading, having that sense of, ooh, what happens next, what happens next, you're always, and as an adult, it's fun, because I want to know what happens next, and you know, for me, it is a quick read, so I can just kind of get through the whole book very quick, and, and that pace does help. So overall, I think it's a very fun read. I enjoyed it a lot. It has the spirit of the movie, but is ironically vastly different.
2: Very different, very different, but not. It's, it's not like different in the ways like the the certain situations they go from from like point A to point B are the same, but different situations happen. In each moment, it's mm-hmm. like eventually there are like checkpoints throughout the book. We have to get to this location; this happens, but not exactly how it happens in the book.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one of one of the interesting things for me is the fact that this is his debut novel, um, and I love the fantasy elements of it. Like one of the things that attracts me to Roald Dahl is how fantastic his worlds are. Whether it is the BFG, the witches. Of course, Charlie and the Ch- chocolate factory, mm-hmm. Matilda. Uh, so yeah. he 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 has a, a a grasp of this sort of element. And what's crazy to me in doing this research, I obviously I knew that he's a very famous children's no- novelist, but the fact that this was his first book and pretty much this was his sort of last career. <laughs> <laughs> he was yeah. pretty well decorated before that in things that are not. Anything close to like being a novelist,
2: yeah. Anything related to writing or literature in that sense. But good for him because the, to end basically on like this type of career for the rest of his life. I mean, it's also very admirable because when you read his stories, they're they're likable stories. They're for kids. They're they're enjoyable, and there's good lessons, life lessons, and morals that you can take away from them. So. I think at this point when he, he started writing, like, he's already experienced so much life that he put it into his books.
0: And, you know, for the most part, like, he was a soldier. Let's just call it sort of that. Uh, it, you know, having lived through World War II and so forth. And you would wonder if he would have a bad viewpoint of the world. Like, if he, if he had a pessimistic angle to every, all his stories. Mm-hmm. And obviously with a children's book, you want to have optimism and hope and he has that and w- i think it's it's genuine i don't think he's just doing it just to do it and i think that's what the the passion and the, and the appeal is um cer- certainly with this one so i appreciate that and one of the, one of the things kind of learning it about it he got practiced by basically telling stories to his kids yeah you know, why not i think I think a lot of parents could be novelists for children's books if they just practice that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, and you have to remember, this is the time before internet, before computers were really taking off, so this is where the imagination and creation of actual stories do come up, because good parents do tell bedtime stories to their kids and put them to sleep and have fun adventures such as this one, So because when you even think about a little boy in a giant page, you're like, what? Um, But Going off and getting to a destination, that's definitely something that you would follow in a kid's story if you're telling to your children. So uh, I like how it, it easily translated from one night he was just telling his kids a made-up story to this to this public, you know, publication. So yeah. good for him.
0: After all, I mean, you know, you kind of go back to, like, Caveman days and, like, the idea of stories they shared. And if only some of them could have been recorded. And it's great that essentially he did that. And his ideas, what I appreciate, just came from ev- anywhere and everywhere, uh, much like Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, this story came thanks to an apple tree. Yep.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, do you
0: want to give the full context of that?
2: Yeah. So, Doll grew up in on the English side in the UK, and his his house had an apple orchard, and he would always, you know, uh, walk through them and everything, and. There was a day where he had this thought: What happens? Uh, what would happen if, like apples, didn't didn't stop growing? Because apples get to a certain size, if they're a definitive size. So he thought of that concept. What if, like, uh, produce was oversized? And that concept went into the peach.
0: Well, what I appreciate, I-, I can't imagine the dialogue he must have had. He's like, "Okay, I want to write a story." But apple's kind of lame, pear's kind of lame, can't be a cherry, mm-hmm. but a peach. But a peach. Peach is a little more juicy and delicious, so we'll go with a peach.
2: And plump. And yeah. it's fun because no one has actually seen a giant peach. <laughs> Peaches are, in in relative size, fairly small. They fit in your hand. Yeah, That's almost it. like our mic cube here. Yeah, at, exactly. Uh, this Circle could be a peach 9. size.
0: Uh, absolutely. So, and he just sort of ran with it. As we mentioned, this was his first book. Uh, now he did have issues getting it published overall, um, but lo and behold, he you know he found a way to persevere. So let's let's talk about the book. Like what? Just first impressions when you first started. What were you drawn into and and whatnot?
2: Well, I think the very first paragraph or the second paragraph. There's literally the line where his parents were eaten by a rhino from the zoo. From the zoo and. I, this was, as a reader, I'm like, okay, it's it's a crazy story, it's it's an outrageous type of ridiculous t- type of story, I was like, alright, let's go with it, it's a kid's story, um, and that already sucked me in, because you know it's going to get beyond the, what you would call, like, humanistic, um, it, it is, there's a little you know, magical, supernatural element to this story, and then, which I enjoyed. Absolutely, and
0: his prose is very direct he sets it up he tells you here's your main character henry james trotter but there's tragedy in his life yep <laughs> and you go from one to the other to the other and and i i appreciate that uh, one of the interesting parts for me in reading it is his his love and sense for educating kids because when you read it he spends enough time talking about the different bugs and kind of educating kids and and not from um, just the here's a couple of quick facts, but very interesting facts that you're if a kid, you're like, oh, that sounds so cool. And so I, I like, like that he backdoored that edu- educational element into it.
2: Yeah, and I think it's cool because when you are kids – They teach you books. They teach you animals um, growing up. So why not learn the same information from the things that you're already learning at the same time?
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's it's a cliche thing, but that's the whole like if you get a kid to be able to read and get create a love of reading for them, uh, then you're essentially giving them like the greatest gift. And so he's serving multiple masters in doing so. Um, and for his first book, to, to be able to pull off all those things, to keep an exciting story, to keep it educational, uh, have someone relatable, all those things. And I, I mean, when you talk about the univers- universality, all he really wants is just friends and a place to belong. Yeah. What kid doesn't want that?
2: And kids, kids love learning from different types of creatures that aren't human, if you think about it, because – Think of all the children, like famous children programming. You know, like Sesame Street, Muppets. There, those are animals that you're learning lessons from. Like even Clifford, the big red dog. <laughs> it's a dog. Um, and Arthur. Like yeah, I, the list goes on and on. So when like you're thinking of kids' stories, learning information, they're usually from animals.
0: Yeah, because we don't we don't necessarily trust adults, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh. Well. Well, and you know, and in that case, like it's interesting. You know, uh, the aunts in particular, right? They're representative of the humans, and they're certainly not good. Uh, So it's interesting, kind of, like, the parents were good, but we don't get much on the parents. The rhino kills them. That's that. And
2: that's that. Um, Also, ridiculous in the way that, like, they were just killed off. So it already established that he's all alone, and the only human interaction has been his awful aunts. So, but... As funny and caricatures uh, that the ants are, they they still represent like a certain sadness and evil mm-hmm. that he always has to deal with.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that um, for sure. And one, I find it fascinating that um, usually you want to contain the story, especially if you're going to kind of be in, in that sh- quick and that short. And the amount of characters he's able to to have, and the ability to have. Of different voices for each of them is incredible because you you get everyone's personality right off the bat and even at moments when there's no attributions to the dialogue you kind of know who's saying what sense after a certain point
2: yeah definitely you get the personalities that are well established in the book but also you get the purpose as well and like they each had their moment throughout the entire adventure where they shined um, where like the glowworm had to provide the light in the dark, where the spider had to spin the web and, and even the silkworm had to help produce silk to help save people. So they, they each had their moment that added to the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and for as crazy it w- as it was, it established like all these things in a sense of, well, they could theoretically happen. You know if you're gonna, if you're gonna fly a giant peach, well, you're probably some seagulls could work.
2: Yeah, seagulls, they're already up in the air. Why not?
0: Yeah. And the way they went about it, <laughs> this is, um, again, when you talk about the difference between the, the book and the movie, and we'll certainly talk about it at more at length, but just even that notion, they they both use the same means to fly, meaning the seagulls, but in the book, the fact that they have to do it one by one, and James has that patience to really just In essence, put just the earthworm at harm's way 500 times. 500 times. Like, what are the percentages at some point something's going to go bad?
2: Very, very (laughs) high. Um, And I'm glad, and that's what the movie can help do in the adaptation, to, like, help expedite a very timely process such as that. Uh, But it, it shows that he is such a determined and innovative kid. And uh, he put his ingenuity in, into the process to help them all fly. I mean, no one else thought of flying. He he was the one who thought of flying. So uh, it, it's smart that he could think of all these things um, and inventions for this peach to help, like evolve it in a way.
0: And I think I think that's the biggest theme of of the book or the takeaway is that sometimes you got to just look at it from a different perspective and everything will be okay in essence uh, you know i think when when you're growing up that that's part of your learning process is the ability to you know see different sides see different perspectives that are not just your own and i think both the movie and the book in particular are able to capture that quite well and impart it hopefully to the reader yeah. certainly for me it it did
2: yeah and absolutely and and i think it just shows that uh even if you aren't as creative as he was, you can still take the time and process to think of how to constantly, um, like, like constantly improve upon things that you're you're given in a situ- certain situation.
0: Yeah, because I mean, ultimately, his superpower, if you want to call it that, is just the the ability to stay positive <laughs> and solution oriented. <laughs>
2: We're getting eaten by sharks. let's do something
0: yeah simple as that right um, so obviously the book was very very well received um it's it's gotten a number of prints um
2: interesting interestingly enough it it actually was first published in u s and it only sold only like a handful of copies about like Two thousand copies, which is not a lot, whatever, whatsoever. Um, so it was originally a fail in America, but then it took him four years to find another publication, and another publisher for the UK, and once it was released in the UK, four years later, then it took off.
0: And and it did, and that's a funny story in itself. Like um, the the daughter of a publisher was reading the the book, and she was so engrossed in it. That the publisher eventually is like, well, I gotta, I gotta put this to print. This is this is amazing. And uh, dicey move by Roll Dahl. He essentially took a deal where he would only make money if the book made money. Yeah. Um, after costs.
2: And for your first book, that's a very um, ballsy move.
0: <laughs> it is, cause, uh, but it it shows. I I don't know if it's just showed how much he didn't know or just how confident he was in the book
2: one mm-hmm. or the other
0: but it certainly paid off
2: it, it did pay off but it's interesting to it's successful now thanks to you know the adaptation and it has had years to grow a following but originally it was not successful
0: no it was not um all right so let's as far as parts like what what the the language of the book it's so simple And so to the point and kind of factual, that in essence, it translates really well. And for the most part, like in odd sense, it almost reads like a screenplay because there's so little writing Mm -hmm. that when he says like, you know, they, they caught the bird, it's like, okay, there's no internalization. There's no things that like you kind of like a, a script, essentially one page equals one minute. And in this sense, like it's just a very long movie.
2: Right. He, he caught 500 birds yeah they like, only even the writing because we know it, it was a individual one by one type of bird the paragraphs goes he caught 100 birds then he caught 200 birds 300 birds 400 birds up to 500 but that was only one paragraph so like even that expedited the process even though we know it was one by one
0: yeah and you know even that isolated line right you could still imagine that you know, I know it's different from the book to the movie, but but even that, let's say, if it was the same, you could imagine a quick montage of just let's say let's say birds flying and just having a fade from 100 to 200. So it it just reads so well and it translates amazingly as far as at least to me. Like I, I understand the appeal. You got a giant peach; no one else has seen that mm-hmm. uh, already. I mean, it, the book's always been illustrated, and so. When you look at the pictures, you're left in wonder. And there's such a fascination, you know, like how would this look as a movie? And I'm I'm glad that they were able to make a movie. Now, granted, it was made after his death because he just didn't believe that someone could capture this on film the way he had intended.
2: Right. And it's always interesting how you have to wait until after someone passes so you can eventually get the rights to it Um, it happens a lot that you think but if you think about reading reading this book it is such a visual book because kids follow visualization they're not going to follow internalization and with the James, there's like there's a lot of filmic elements. Um, we have the peach, we have the ocean, we have the rhinos. We have cloud people in the book, which aren't in the movies, but there are so many visually striking images that you could creatively go off of you show in a movie.
0: Yeah, I think that the movie handled all those correctly um, quick quickly backtracking. Um, the family, right, um, Roald Dahl's family felt Henry Selleck was the man to, to capture this vision. Um, he had just essentially come off of The Nightmare Before Christmas. A lot of people think Tim Burton, <laughs> Tim Burton worked on the movie, but it was Henry Selleck's direction for that movie. And so you could see, you know, that sort of style, they, they thought it would work well for this and he was on board, brought the rest of the gang essentially and was able to do this and, um. I appreciate like when you talk about those filmic like elements. What I what I love is that you know one of the things you hope is when you translate a book that you the spirit is there. And for me, the spirit of the book is entirely there, and like it's handled with a lot of care and love.
2: Yeah, and you and like even stop motion it takes so much time. So they really had to believe in the creative process. To, to stick with a stop-motion movie for over an hour. Um, so ju- just the time and effort put into the film, they they really believed in it. Absolutely, and,
0: and I think, like, script-wise, they, they made a lot of great changes. Like, they bookended the Rhino, beginning mm-hmm. and end, so that was a major change. Um, they aunts, same thing. They were in ever, ever-present ever danger. Like, we thought we were done with the aunts, but the fact that they show up in the movie in New York is, is a vast difference um and they go to new york but the fact that in the movie that's the destination when you talk about like visual representations the fact that even from england he has that tiny peephole and is able to see new york and that's Mm -hmm. that's where we're going new york the city of dreams, the city of lights
2: yeah the dreaming so uh and and like i I believe like a lot of kids can relate to always wanting to go to somewhere they're always dreaming of and for him it was new york and new york itself is a character because we we eventually get there and the whole empire state building plays a big part um because that's what he always wanted to see and and i like that because kids can always relate to wanting to get to a certain destination that's out of their reach
0: And, and new york and out of all things, like, you know, I'm sure everyone has their own destination, but New York is obviously a very popular destination for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it has a history like Ellis Island and, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Like all those are representative of essentially a new start, freedom and all that. And when you have two very crappy aunts, that that's certainly needed in, in someone's life.
2: Yeah. And New York is like a big hub for... Not to sound terrible, but immigrants. I mean, we had the whole Ellis Island when people came over. It's like New York is a place that people always want to go to. When you're like, I want to go to America. I want to go to New York. They're like, they go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, and um, you know the other big theme of the of the book, or sorry, the movie that I appreciated it really escalated the idea of rewarding dreamers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, his his dad and his mom give him this inherent trait to want to be a dreamer and it comes to fruition because that's you know when, when we talk about seeing things from a different perspective it's because he dreams of creating something and i love that ending speech he has in the movie in new york when he says like you know all these things like new york someone had to dream it up it didn't just come here right um and i thought like for kids movie that's a very powerful lesson
2: yeah, and I like that because James is a likable kid. You want to follow your protagonist. Um, and the fact that he is so creative, innovative, and imaginative, um, that's, that's a character you can follow throughout an entire story.
0: Absolutely. And so uh, I want to continue obviously talking about it, but I want to give some context to the movie and the effort that it took to make it. So I want to go to sort of a video Uh, getting it directly from the horse's mouth rather than from my own or marissa's so here's um a little video on the making of here we go
1: where courage can lead to adventure
0: i love these old school um sort of promo videos (laughs) path
1: to a place called home
2: 1996 seems so far away. The
1: director of The Nightmare Before Christmas comes at new seems like <laughs> for,
0: for yesterday for me.
1: James and the Giant Peach.
0: I remember like the like these types of promos in the movie would get replayed over and over.
1: You perceive as real objects coming to life is still really impressive. BeMark. For James and the Giant Peach, director Selleck guided an award-winning team of animators illustrators, set designers, and camera operators on 22 sound stages over a three-year production schedule, all working to push the artistic limits of stop-motion animation.
0: They're puppets. They're uh, repositionable, and they just stay in the pose you put them in until you put them in another one. So in each frame, we take the puppet and make a small... Pause it real fast. Take the frame. So uh, movies are essentially 24 frames a second, Mm -hmm. right? So they need to shoot pictures 24 times to create one second. (laughs) That's crazy.
2: And this movie is an hour and 16 minutes?
0: It has some live action, which we'll certainly talk about. But go continue the video.
2: Move it again. And once you've done that
0: 24 times, you have one second of film. Sometimes you have multiple characters. And with each character, there's multiple joints. So there's a lot of things to keep track of.
1: To complete just one minute of finished film takes an entire week of animating. Put up. Come on! Ugh. Give me a best shot! Talk about patience. Good shot! And to Dead heighten shot. the fantasy of stop motion, Selleck decided to include live action film as well. Action! Yeah, Selleck, so. Why not save that automatic jolt of magic you get from stop motion for when the magic is released? For me, it was best personified by sticking to the stop-motion for the miracle world, then mixing it at the end. That's a good way Action. to do it. How dare you speak to us like that?
2: Oh, ah, the ants. Minis, bugs, giant
1: bugs. The cast of James and the Giant Peach is a world-class ensemble of talent. Including Academy Award winners Richard Dreyfuss and Susan Sarandon, Oh Susan, Jane Leaves from TV's hit show Frasier, <laughs> and British comedic actors Simon Callow, David Thewlis, Miriam Margolyes, Joanna Lumley from Absolutely Fabulous, and Paul Terry as James.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Together, they breathe life into the story of a young boy's fantastic adventures with some unusual friends aboard a magic giant peach.
2: We are in the middle of the. How do you say?
1: She Russian or French? <laughs> really empowers you. I mean, I think it's great for kids to know that they can figure things out and they make the difference, and that your fears won't have any power unless you give it to them.
2: Yeah. Oh Ladybug was my favorite.
0: Was she? Yeah.
1: We'll,
2: we'll talk about that in a moment too. It to
1: be my little sister's favorite book growing up, and I sort of got into it and used to read it to her all the time. So. You know, when I
0: was asked to do this, it was quite a thrill. She does not sound like Ladybug at all. I
2: <laughs> know. The story of James
1: and the Giant Peach has been a favorite
2: saying, of children they, the all over the world. They're big in their time. It's like, it this is the 90s. was humongous. By British
1: writer Roald Dahl, author of the classic Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What do we do?
0: So you're going to hear the Randy Newman music mm-hmm. in the background. Randy Newman, obviously, huge for Toy Story.
2: Yep. I um,
0: you could pause Sorry. it here
2: and, and he's worked with disney so yeah
0: and um i think that as far as a huge difference like roald dahl always had a musical component to his books but the movie obviously escalated that much much more
2: yeah absolutely and i think randy does a great job um because the if we're talking a little bit about music the different moments that happen there are a lot of scary moments especially with the the Cloud Rhino, and then a lot of, like, happy moments when we go to New York, the the music drastically changes, but fits for every moment that we're in.
0: Absolutely. What was your favorite song?
2: Mm. You know, I, I never really had a favorite song, but I always remembered the song that James was singing when he was making the Paper Lantern. For some reason, that one always stuck with me.
0: Interesting. I, uh, my... <laughs> the one i like is the one we opened up with the you know you can order it by barrels if you you, you can get it by barrels if you order it by post simply because like that's one that everyone's involved in mm-hmm. and it's such a highlight it's kind of middle of the movie so i always appreciate that one um but you're right it has the 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 different sort of genres for lack of a better term that it can span uh, just even like the violin from the grasshopper, and as he said, like this is me happy, this is me <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, so
2: different emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Different wide range. Yeah.
0: Um. So let's. One of the things I wanted to talk about uh, is kind of the aunts, right? Because we a lot of changes happen early on, and yet what I love when it comes to the aunts they're exactly in the movie as you would have pictured them in the book. Yes. And in fact, what what one of the things I truly truly appreciate is when we kind of first get to meet them, they have the same exact dialogue about her tummy showing, the feet and <laughs> all of that is lifted straight from the book.
2: You know, I did like the the ants for the the laughable factor That they're supposed to bring, they are somewhat the comedic characters, and even their names, Spiker and Sponge, Sponge, um, those are those like you you never name a person those things. So you you know that like you can't take them too seriously. They um, they're funny in that sense, and they're scary when you look at them in the movie. These are actual humans, and boy, the makeup on them made them look dead. Um, But also, you can't take them seriously because they look not human in that sense
0: yeah absolutely i i I made a joke yesterday that to uh to call them like death would be an insult to death itself yes (laughs) um that's how horrific they they look and as far as the movie what it's able to do is have visual motifs because they established you know miss spider is the spider that james saves The fish heads that they try to that the aunts try to serve him eventually come back later as just a quick little throwaway. Um, So nothing's nothing's really wasted visually. They're able to take advantage of all those things in the movie, and I, I appreciate that.
2: Right, and I like how the movie, we see them the, those items a couple times, but every time you see them, they, their meanings tend to evolve. Like the, the rhino at the beginning, obviously very scary, but at the end it had somewhat of a different meaning. It, it, it took on um, you know, facing your fears in that sense. Uh, so I, I liked how they took the visual elements but gave them a different meaning by the second time around.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, having that... <coughs> having that duality came from the, the live action going into stop motion going into live action again. And I thought... Like, that's to me what really... why I love this movie and even more so perhaps than like Nightmare Before Christmas or Coraline is because it has that element of... It's purposeful change. Uh, it's the green things that spark this and... <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, so you're now all of a sudden you're just clay and you see the world differently. Um, but I, I appreciate that in the way that was set up with the green things and um, whatnot. The
2: crocodile tongues?
0: Crocodile tongues over four days or whatever it was. That
2: looked like, I mean, in the book and in the movie, they're called crocodile tongues. But in the movie, they look like green glow maggots, Yes, essentially. <laughs>
0: Um, I, I I would agree absolutely. Um, what, how do you think for you? How's that switch handled? Because um, the, the last thing I'll say before throwing it to you, I even the world, even though it's live action, it feels very Tim Burton-esque. Where obviously it's not like it's got painted backgrounds and it's not quite real, um, almost like German expressionist.
2: Right. It's very gothic. When um, we saw that in nightmare. Before Christmas, and in even this one, re watching the movie, everything was very dark. Granted, the story takes place majority at nighttime, but visually it's very dark, so you have to have some things that have a pop of color, which is, you know, the peach and stuff. Um, I, I like how he had some things r- like really literally represented a, a, across from book to movies like the, the glowworms. Not exactly crocodile tongues, mm-hmm. but it is something visual that you can understand what's happening. It get, the glowing gives a magical element to it because no one's going to hand you a bag of crocodile tongues. I mean, come <laughs> on. Um, so I, I like how he did take the creative aspect and make them a little bit more exaggerated just mm-hmm. for the appeal for children.
0: Absolutely, and I, the narrator slash mystery man himself, I think just does a, such a wonderful job. And um, one of the things, one of the best lines in the movie, and I think it works for kids and adults, is "None of this makes sense," says James. Not up here, it doesn't. You know, the the mysterious man points to his head, but in here it does, and he points to the heart. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's, there's. I think that's another great message. There's certain things that you can't. Just uh, You can't understand. You have to just either know or just believe.
2: I feel. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing.
0: Another Disney movie.
2: <laughs> that is another Disney movie.
0: That's Santa Claus for those of you not aware.
2: Yes. It's coming to crown <laughs> Christmas, but we are in Halloween right now.
0: <laughs> um, they did take out one of the bugs, the, the silkworm, uh, is not in the movie. No. Uh, and you were saying before we went on air that... They were essentially – they reattributed her role to Miss Spider.
2: Yeah, the the spider because – in the silkworm in the book plays a big part and helps, like, save the centipede and stuff. And you can um, have all the silk. So – and if you think about spiders and stuff, they they have – both of them can have strings that help um, serve a purpose. But they gave all of those moments to the spider because it kind of becomes redundant Mm -hmm. if you keep the silkworm
0: what was uh it it was kind of redundant but in a funny way in the book but i understand why they took it out for the movie the centipede having 42 shoes yeah in the book he he has james like put on and off his shoes and just movie wise a i think that would have been making it would have been in pain awful uh but also i think just story wise like Whatever, he doesn't need it. He's a centipede.
2: Yeah, like they gave him enough legs (laughs) to understand that he's a centipede. I mean, (laughs) I didn't count exactly how many legs he had, but it was enough, probably around 12. It was enough to know that this is a centipede insect.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, And just visually, like when they go into the stop motion world, it looks a lot more visually appealing. Uh, I love the picture of them making the food and just just the texture of everything looks Mm -hmm. so cool.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you only have a peach, and if you look at a peach, it's actually very boring visually. But uh, what was great about the movie that they gave it so many different forms and different purposes that um, in the scenes in in the movie, and like they gave it more creative life. Like they made it look like um, big bounds of food and circles and a whole banana tower and stuff. So like they gave it different looks. Um, going off of one boring look.
0: Exactly. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Um, who was your favorite character? Because um, uh, one of the things I talked about was how well they translated each of the characters, you know, top to bottom. But uh, movie-wise, who was your favorite representation, uh, that translated from the book.
2: Movie wise, I love the ladybug um, because she, I, the the way that they visually portrayed her, she's like such an innocent older lady that um, she's kind of like the grandma figure that looks out for everyone, is also nurturing and mothering in that way. And she she served a purpose and like she helped pass on the you know wisdom and life lessons um, from this like kind of respect your elders in that that sense she was
0: that and also don't mess with her like (laughs) exactly she's a lover not a fighter but she has to protect she'll protect
2: yeah she she'll go mama bear on you
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely um yeah i thought everyone's i i think um i like the centipede the most just because i mean he's such a over-the-top character and he's one of those you love him or you hate him Mm -hmm. um but having grown up close to new york and around new yorkers I you know it's I, i'm I'm used to that sort of
2: attitude, uh, yeah exactly in, in a character well, the interesting thing about the centipede is him out of all the insects has the biggest character arc, and I liked how they did play off of that from this the book to the movie because you are following the centipede has a lot of moments, um but for a character, like he is very dislikable at the beginning but also very likable at the end, and I think they did a good job.
0: Absolutely, um, I I would agree. And overall, you know the video the video that we played showed it, but amazing, amazing talent, and I don't think anyone was miscast at all.
2: No, <laughs> I absolutely. really don't. And I think the great thing about because it is stop motion, you can get any actor to do the voice talent and. Uh, like watching it now, twenty plus years later, I didn't know who were all the voices. I I don't remember mm-hmm. who the cast were. So and it's good for that because I got lost just in the performances and not the oh it's this actor behind the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was good because I liked watching every single insect, yeah, and in arachnid. I guess mm-hmm. you could say too.
0: <laughs> I would agree. Well, that about does it for our. Dissection of of James the Giant Peach Both the book and the movie Um, Any final thoughts That you would like to share With the audience while we have
2: I I I would definitely recommend This book to my current nieces And nephews because I guarantee you They have not read it because it's not their generation But I appreciate Roald Dahl for creating a, A story so many years ago That is timeless And enjoyable for both adults And kids
0: yeah, and then that's the that's the true goal of art is to transcend generations and time and space, and this certainly does that. And I think the movie to me is very timeless. The book is timeless, so uh, I you know I want to share this with a lot of people. It it is one of my favorite movies, and I don't think it's one of those movies that you watch and you're like ah. Um, you know i have a nostalgia factor to it but it's kind of not you recognize that it's not the world's best movie i don't think this is a case of that i think this is still a good movie it lives up
2: yeah definitely and there's good life lessons that are still universal too with um family and friendship and the importance of working together
0: absolutely well normally we announce which which book slash movie we're going to be talking about next um for whatever reason, we have yet to decide that, but that just means that you have to kind of check back in. Uh, we'll give our social media handles in a moment, so you know you can kind of keep up-to-date there. Um, in the meantime, we also do encourage you to comment with your thoughts and opinions. We truly appreciate that you would join us, that you would listen to us or watch us, and, of course, that you, you have something to say as well. So just because we talked about it doesn't mean the conversation has to end. Um, that's the beauty. We can transcend space and time.
2: Yes, and generations.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So um, in the meantime, at Serafini TV for that's Marissa, right. I'm at Phil Svitek. A uh, couple of other quick things. Uh, if you enjoy what we do, Marissa and I do a show called Anatomy of Movie where we dissect the latest movies in depth similar to this, um, but not fully like this. Um also, if you are going to see James and the Giant Peach, and Marissa and I did what, what we're calling a watch along, which essentially, it, imagine like, imagine a director's commentary, except not from the directors. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's essentially what we did. So if you want to listen to us, you could sync up your DVD or Blu ray or whatever service you're using to watch James and the Giant Peach, all the while listening to us talk about it. So our enjoyment becomes your enjoyment, hopefully. Uh, that's over on. Uh, popcorntalk.com just uh, search watch along James and the Giant Peach Bill and Marissa there it is and it'll, it'll show up thank you again this has been a wonderful wonderful time and we'll see you next time on another Adapted
1: from executive producers Kevin Undergaro Maria Menounos and Jeffrey Masters thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment to suggest a book title or their author you can tweet us at Book Circle Online This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.